How do you know you're up to date? When you follow EMS World, you answer that question with confidence. Because when we say EMS World, we mean the whole world of EMS. The remaining question for you is how will you stay up to date? In print, online, at EMS World Expo, the world's largest EMS dedicated conference, and now in a podcast. Welcome to another episode of EMS World Podcasts. I'm your host, Mike McCabe. In today's episode, we take a deeper dive into the featured article in February's issue, Making the Most of Police Partners. This piece by senior editor John Eric is really well done. It's thought-provoking, timely, and certainly warrants some further discussion. So let's ask ourselves, is it time that we start leaning more on our police partners for help? In a time when we're hemorrhaging staff, where units are being put out of service and response times are steadily climbing, how can we parlay our police partner's presence into something more purposeful? With me to discuss this intriguing topic is one of the contributors to this article. Dr. David McCardle brings a unique perspective to this argument. He can speak from both sides. He is a physician, board certified in emergency medicine, but wait for it, he is also a reserve peace officer with plenty of experience in the law enforcement setting. Needless to say, he is quite the hybrid. Doc, thanks so much for joining me today. Mike, uh, thank you so much for having me. Uh, John had contacted me about this important topic, and certainly this reflects a tragic death, first of Elijah McLean, which he reported on. We also had several other cases in uh, Colorado, some of which were uh, fatal. Another uh, sad case was Hunter Barr in Colorado Springs, who uh, unfortunately uh, had an overdose of a common decongestant medication in addition to some medications he was already on and had developed a serotonin syndrome uh, in Colorado Springs, which also had a tragic outcome. So unfortunately, a lot of these cases have very similar background. And if you look at the videos, they all reflect uh, something that we do need to have in the national conversation so that uh, fire and EMS and law enforcement providers can go ahead and do the best we can in the pre-hospital team. Yeah, I think that's the point. You know, as I read this article, Doc, I realized that, you know, law enforcement certainly has been by our side, you know, in almost all of the responses that, you know, we take on a daily basis. And and certainly they've played a major role in many cases, whether it be, you know, early defibrillation or CPR. But, you know, in this day and age now, in this COVID era, where we are really hurting uh, as far as staffing is concerned, I'm wondering, is it something that we can do to, to bring law enforcement more into the medical fold? And what can they do to help us out to bring treatment to patients that need it immediately? Well, I think you have to recognize, Mike, that first off, police officers are almost always the first of the first responders to arrive on the scene. And time is just so critical. Oftentimes, they're the first victims, so we've made inroads in using tourniquet use, for instance, to control external uh, bleeding. But other things, other emergencies, certainly we can play a role. 
and even in some communities, as you mentioned, uh, that are having problems with staffing for ambulances, I understand that in some rural departments or rural sections of the country, uh, we actually have seen some police agencies step forward and train their officers to be EMTs so that they can deliver early assessment before the ambulance gets there. And they can deliver uh, uh, shocks with an AED if indicated. Let's step back a little bit, Doc. And, you know, from the intro, I, I explained a little bit about your history, but how do you have this best of both worlds approach where you have a, a physician who is board certified in emergency medicine, but also lends himself to, to the uh, law enforcement community? How did you even get into that? And how do you have the passion for that? Well, um, I'm kind of an ambulance attendant that never grew up totally. Uh <laughs> I, uh, I grew up in a small town outside of Pittsburgh, Pennsylvania. We had a uh, volunteer uh, fire department, but we were very professional. Um, in addition to routine like engine and truck company operations, we were heavy on rescue operations. We even had a bloodhound team. We had a water recovery team. And we did some really cutting edge things. And when a uh, private ambulance company had gone out of business, it was many of the firefighters that stepped in to start what was a small ambulance company working out of two bays of an old garage, which has grown into a major uh, company that covers two counties with several stations. And then kind of the progression then for going into medicine, that was a track I was already on. As far as the police side of the house, I first got involved with police officers training some of the technical rescue things that they needed to know, for instance, repelling and things like that. And then they said, well, you know, maybe it'd be good to have somebody medical around. Uh, so I got into that. And then the deeper, I, it didn't take very long to realize that I really needed to be tactically competent to survive in a potentially very hostile environment. You know, you're an adrenaline junkie, Doc, just like uh, almost all of us. I, 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 I'm seeing right through you, but you know, it's, I got, you I got, got my you. number, Mike. But interestingly enough, you know, you say that where you, you take your, your medical background and you realize that you're embedding yourself into law enforcement. Law enforcement often looks for our assistance, you know, whether it be SWAT operations, tactical operations, rescue task force, where they want to embed a medical component. With this article, I think it's actually ironic because we're looking to embed law enforcement into our cash, you know, into our availability and, and you know, what it looks like for them to help us. And, it, you, you know, as I said, uniquely for you, you can attack this conversation, you know, from two, two different fronts, you know, from the white coat perspective as the physician and then from the badge-wearing perspective of a law enforcement officer. And that's kind of the way I want to take this conversation, if it's okay with you. No, absolutely. And I, I think the, the trend we need to realize is that patrol is really where the action is. Um, you know, if you're going to wait for a SWAT medic to come take care of your casualty, you know, if they're going to be the guy to put the tourniquet on, you're probably not going to do well waiting uh, till they get there. So it has to be done by 
all the people working on the scene initially as a team. Without question. And, you know, that that's what I'm saying as far as you have inherent delays. You know, SWAT is not there immediately, obviously. So we, we need to look at the broader scope of this from the regular ground troop patrol division. And from the white coat perspective, let's start there. You know, considering what the EMS industry is presently dealing with, do you feel as a medical provider, do you feel that leaning on law enforcement for assistance is needed now more than ever? Oh, absolutely, Mike, because time is the fourth dimension and we just don't have enough of it. And there are laws of physiology that have to be addressed in medicine. For instance, you can bleed to death in as little as two to three minutes. If your brain is anoxic for four to six minutes, you can have irreparable brain damage. And um, you have to be able to deal with these contingencies very early on. You know, military data suggests that if you're shot in the trunk, you have about a 67% chance of dying. Well, in the civilian sector, gunfights and and stabbings in an urban environment, especially if you can be taken to a trauma center very quickly, you have a much better chance of survival. But the, the death spiral, if you would, really looks the same if you look at enough body cam videos. For instance, in the immediate post-shooting uh, uh, moments, uh, the person's complaining they're short of breath as their you know, chest cavity fills with air where it doesn't belong or blood that doesn't belong there. And the officers oftentimes will start CPR at the four to five minute mark. Well, typically your first engine company to arrive with EMS is going to arrive about six minutes into the call. And by contract, ambulance services, since we started ambulance services in the modern era, needed to be on scene by the nine minute mark about 90% of the time. Well, there was no science behind that. It just seemed like that's what we could do. And that was pre-COVID staffing. Now that the hospitals and law enforcement and, and EMS is so strapped for personnel, then we need to really think about the police are gonna be there for a lot longer period of time. Now, do cops need to be EMTs or paramedics? That probably won't justify the time and monetary commitment to do that. But just like the Navy has corpsmen that are embedded uh, to provide medical care, uh, I think we need to do a similar model in law enforcement, where we have some police officers that are trained to handle these crises because they're going to arrive in the first couple minutes. If an officer calls out that he needs help because he's being in a fight or being shot at, the cavalry is going to arrive in an urban setting within the next two to three minutes. Yeah, I feel almost like this is a classic case of, I, I don't want to say complacency, but almost like it's, it's very stagnant in a way that it took off right early on in the 90s, late 90s, we started having law enforcement carry AEDs, right? And provide, you know, that first line defibrillation when they arrived at the patient because 90% of the times they were getting there first. And I think that was a very big thing at that time. And then I almost feel like it just got, it, it plateaued 
and then went back to relying mostly on the EMS system. And now we're in these unprecedented times where we need to get back to law enforcement utilizing those skills and those tools. But we've we've almost you know put ourselves in a situation where it's like, well, wow, now we have to retrain those people and we have to take this seriously again. You know, it's a case of where's the buy-in. You know, because there's a whole new crop of people that are in those positions from the top all the way down. And, and those people, you know, ne- weren't necessarily involved initially. So I think we have to start to progress here as a profession to say, hey, listen, we need to start these programs again. And we need to make sure that we're overseeing them and reporting the data so it makes it so it makes it known how important it is. Uh, you know, what are your thoughts on that? Oh, absolutely. Absolutely correct. And. Police officers, you have to understand, are extraordinarily busy, just like everybody else is. And many police executives see this as, um, you know, we've sort of bought into the fact that it's the firemen and the uh, EMS professionals that are the true um, people. people that will really make an impact in pre-hospital care. And they don't realize how important time is. And police officers, interestingly, of all the professions, even medicine, they have to master a wider variety of topics uh, than any other profession. And they can't be just sort of casually knowledgeable about it. They really have to master this knowledge. So it's the law. It's driving. It's use of force, it's defensive tactics, it's firearms. It's such a wide variety of things. And then training time, you know, here again, in, 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 in the law enforcement profession, we are seeing a loss of people due to COVID. We are seeing a loss of personnel because with all the social unrest, it's not as much fun to be a policeman right now. So we are very shorthanded. So when you look at training time, you have to think about um, how much time's available. And I think we have to make a major shift to computer-based blended training because one of the things, instead of sending a police officer away for a day or a week of specialized training, we need to leverage the fact that they will, if they're on a computer learning little bits of information here and there, A, that works better for their brain-based training, but also if they're available for calls, then they're not away from time. They're actually available for calls. So it's, it's patrol time. It's not training time. That's an interesting concept. And, and certainly, you know, using that at your own pace, utilizing that training at your own pace is going to benefit, you know, the officer, but it's also going to benefit the community because like you say, you're not going to be out of service. And I know I mentioned a lot about AEDs and CPR and, and certainly uh, bleeding control with tourniquets with law enforcement has become a really big uh, uh, initiative. What I'm wondering is what about some of these other truly critical type things that can be done by law enforcement, whether it be EpiPens or, you know, hypoglycemic cases, you know, what are your thoughts on that to expanding the scope for these law enforcement, uh, law enforcement officers? And I'm not saying that they have to be, you know, ultimate professionals as far as paramedic line training and all that, but just awareness and the ability to do these things can certainly make a huge difference. Oh, absolutely. And here again, these are all time-dependent procedures. And frankly, 
it's not like rocket science type medicine. This, these are usually very simple things. So the EpiPens, um, for instance, uh, for patients who are combative, uh, one of the things we have to realize is that, you know, anytime you have altered mental status and odd behavior, that can be a medical emergency. So we're seeing a lot of these patients. We have to be ready for them. So things that like athletic trainers do as far as cooling in the field for someone who's overheated, that has application. Um, certainly if you identify a few um, uh, police officers with uh, uh, the temperament and uh, interest to pursue more advanced medical training, then uh, those can be a valuable uh, addition uh, to the chain of survival that is so important in the community. You know, we have so many police officers coming out of the military who are medics. And to say that, oh, well, you're a medic. Uh, there's no place for you in law enforcement, go be a fireman. That just doesn't make sense. No, not at all. You're, you're wasting um, qualified talent uh, in with that as far as that uh, is concerned. So I don't understand why that would even be considered. But switching here and pivoting a little bit from the medical side and, and your white coat to the perspective that you have as a peace officer, I want to get you know, the feelings that will likely occur when we're speaking of this amongst the law enforcement community. So, you know, as far as, like we said, Doc, <laughs> law enforcement right now is, is looked upon very differently, um, you know, throughout the country. And there's a lot of extra stress, extra pressure, and certainly uh, new protocols that are out there that law enforcement needs to master. Will they want to take on more when it comes to pre-hospital care? Will there be buy-in from these folks? Um, it's going to vary from place to place. And it's going to vary by the local pressure that the citizens bring to bear. Um, one, of the, <clears throat> one of the people that's often quoted in law enforcement culture is Sir Robert Peel. He was known as Bobby Peel, who was instrumental in setting up the Metropolitan Police Department in London. And he made the comment that the police are the people and the people are the police. So the, the law enforcement you have in your community is ultimately what your people want. And this whole concept of defunding the police, for instance, I would venture to say that there's a vocal minority pushing that. And most of the people are very worried about their safety. They're very worried about their survival. So I think we can leverage those needs to have very limited training for very specific medical types of issues that need to be uh, instilled. Because ultimately, in American law enforcement, the, the big thing is we support the Bill of Rights, which really gives people individual rights. We, we protect life more than property, and we value the sanctity of life. So 
all lives are important to us. We don't discriminate between different cultures and classes. Uh, preservation of life is a fundamental principle of American law enforcement. So I think if the people in the communities push for that, they'll get it. Yeah, and and ultimately, you know, you saying that certainly brings to the forefront what this is all about for our response community. Let's be honest. Everybody that does this, whether you're police, fire, EMS, you do it for one reason, and that's to help others. And so if there is a void that exists, I can't see any professionals that would say, hey, we're not going to do that, even if it means that more people are going to, you know, be critically injured or die. Yeah, I think that the buy-in will be there. I think one of the bigger challenges, Doc, and I'm curious what you think about this, is breaking down the egos and the silos that exist and that have existed forever. Listen, prior to COVID and prior to these work, uh, you know, force shortages, we were preaching heavily in in the uh, emergency service community about integrating the response plans. You know, and not just, uh, you know, operating in your own silos and planning individually because that doesn't work. Well, that still exists to some degree today. And, and also I'm wondering, is it, is it, can it be viewed as counterproductive for EMS to ask for help from law enforcement as EMS is trying to get that essential title, which it doesn't have? Well, Mike, you're hitting on uh, one of the things that, well, why do we think so differently or why do we act so differently? And I think it comes out of operational requirements. For instance, the fire service, they're, they're used to working as a close-knit team because they're coming from a station, they're responding from a known location, they're going to arrive in a very predictable pattern to any given location. Police officers, on the other hand, are typically patrolling alone. So who knows where they're going to be when the call comes out. So there's going to be a very random order of um, arrival of uh, different police officers. And then uh, the EMS personnel work under physicians. Now, physicians, we're taught to be the captain of the ship so that we can navigate very dangerous shoals and, uh, and uh, you know, take care of everything. We're going we're gonna to be, quote-unquote, in charge of everything. And the paramedics, therefore, are held to very strict protocols that they have to follow. You know, we don't have paramedics walk the plank, and we can't give them 20 lashes if they don't uh, do what they're supposed to do. But it actually comes very close to that kind of intimidation in many systems. Yeah, it's it's interesting because, you know, you have that whole dichotomy there where, you know, we're, we're functioning under this very, very channeled type approach. But I, I don't necessarily believe it needs to be that way. I think we need to start thinking outside the box and we need to start realizing that, hey, listen, at the end of the day, this is about the the public. This is about helping others. This is about providing the care and not really mattering what industry you're representing, but really coming together for a common cause. So, Doc, I really appreciate you coming on and, and giving your perspective on this topic because your insight is just so important given your very eclectic background. So many thanks for sharing your thoughts with us. 
You bet, Mike. And, and I think uh, what you're hitting upon, too, is that the pre-hospital team, we are all in this together. Uh, everybody's shorthanded. You know, we've sort of evolved into different specialty knowledge silos, but we need to share that for everyone's sake. Without question, Doc. Very well said, and I do appreciate you coming on. Well, thank you very much for having me. And like I say, I, I hope this will, you know, um, enhance discussion between the different providers because we all come to the scene and the scene's never safe. So we all have a different perspective on what we can do to make the scene safer and time is not on our side. And um, here again, sedation may be a very important precursor to very aggressive medical therapy for these patients who are at very serious risk of dying because they have altered mental status. Certainly a lot of things to think about, Doc, and, and certainly the hope is that people will start to bring this back to their agencies and, and their municipalities and discuss ways that we can be better as a, a responder community. So thanks again. And again, if you haven't read the article yet, do yourself a favor and read it. It's by John Eric, Making the Most of Police Partners. I think it's time we all start thinking of ways to deliver the best possible care to our patients, regardless of uniform. A friendly reminder that EMS World Expo 2022 is in beautiful Orlando, Florida, October 10th to the 14th. So mark your calendars as Expo is a can't-miss event. And thanks again for listening. Stay tuned for more great episodes coming up. I'm Mike McCabe. Talk soon. This has been an episode of EMS World Podcast. You can find this audio and more like it on the podcast page of emsworld.com. You can also follow EMS World on Twitter, Facebook, and Instagram.